Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. We are on the fourth plague tonight. So the plagues are described in three cycles of three plagues each. And in the first of each cycle, so plagues 1, 4, and 7, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh early in the morning. Exodus 8, starting at verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from all his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of the flies. Not in the jeering sense, but in the real sense. You sent these flies to Pharaoh to plague him, to teach him to soften his heart, Teach him to obey you. Lord, help us to learn that you set redemption between your people and their persecutors and that you are in the midst of every land. Seal these truths to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in every plague, God is consistently revealing himself to Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh, this is who I am. Pharaoh is consistently looking the other way, hands in pockets. Can't you tell? I'm ignoring you. And God is not phased by being ignored, and he continues to send plague after plague until he sends a plague that Pharaoh can't ignore. Ignoring God won't make him leave you alone. If God has something he wants to get across to you, he will get that thing across to you. His lesson for Pharaoh in this plague is twofold. The setting of redemption between his people and the Egyptians. Both of these lessons are in verse 22. I will set apart the land of Goshen. That God cares specially for his people. And then the second lesson is that God is in the midst of the land. Not an absentee landlord, not somebody far away, but a God who saves his people and is right there with us. The plague, as all the plagues, starts with the warning. God tells Moses to rise early, something that prophets frequently do. Abraham rose early in the morning. Moses here gets up early. Getting up early may not make you wealthy, as Benjamin Franklin suggested, but oftentimes it does make you obedient to the calling of God. Moses rises early, makes the same demand, let my people go that they may serve me. We've talked about this demand, how revolutionary it is in the ancient world of barbarian splendor, and crushing slavery, this idea that there could be free people. In Pharaoh's mind, there are two classes of people. There's royalty like himself. And in fact, he would be the only example of that. Possibly his mom, possibly his wife. Pretty much him. And everyone else is a slave who exists to serve and glorify Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Throughout the whole Bronze Age of the ancient Near East, So I understand pharaohs would not give marriage alliances. You don't marry into Pharaoh's family. He's too important for that. He's on a whole different level than the royalty of neighboring countries. But God is attempting to pry open Pharaoh's mind and insert into it this idea of a free people freely serving their God. Not a slave people forced to serve a tyrant, but a free people who willingly serve Yahweh God. Pharaoh's not getting the idea. As we'll see, he pushes back hard as Moses presents it to him in concrete terms. But God insists and repeats this phrase over and over, let my people go that they may serve me. The New Testament shows us that slaves can serve God too. Just as an aside, the passages about slaves in the New Testament telling them to obey their masters, what is that saying? Slavery is good? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying slaves can be Christians too. If your circumstances are less than ideal, God doesn't set a big bar in front of you and say, jump over this bar, get your freedom. Then we'll talk about whether you can be a Christian. No, even in slavery, you can be a Christian. Of course, even slaving in Egypt for Pharaoh, you can worship the Lord. 
But the New Testament says if you can get your freedom, get it. And of course, God says, Pharaoh, you will free my people so that they can serve me. Our opponents in the culture wars, what? They tell us, you want to use the force of law to force everyone to serve God. We respond, no, we have a book that shows tyrant after tyrant, like Pharaoh, wanting to use the force of law to stop us from serving God. That was Pharaoh's big idea. It's against the law in Egypt for you to leave your slavery and go and serve Yahweh. So Moses reiterates in every plague this demand for freedom, let my people go. Because this is a new idea that God insists on working out. Freedom for religion. Freedom to worship God, not according to the dictates of Pharaoh, but according to the word of God. So the threat is, well, we're not totally sure what the threat is, actually. Behold, I will send swarms on you. If you have a Bible translation that puts in italics the words that translators have added to clarify, you'll see that the words of flies are in italics every time they occur. The word is just swarms or even a mixture. It just means a mixed up thing. Some of the rabbis have thought that it was a mixture of all kinds of terrible wild beasts. But we really don't know. Somebody, about oh, when they translated this into Greek 2,300 years ago, somebody said, it's going to be flies. And so that's what we have, flies. We don't know that it was flies. But everyone has agreed that we'll just call it swarms of flies. It was swarms of something, something unpleasant. Most commentators think not only that it was swarms of flies, but swarms of biting flies. Swarms of some kind of nasty horsefly or something like that. That's the threat. We said that the plague of frogs seemed a bit ridiculous. The plague of lice was just nasty. And a plague of flies. The most omnipresent, pestiferous animal known to mankind. And God says, I will send them on you and they will be everywhere. All of us have dealt with flies and in concentrations, they are particularly annoying. Ah, I remember one summer driving the water truck. This thing was on a sheep ranch and it had a lot of flies in it. When you open the door, you hear a buzz, and then you look up at the ceiling, and the whole ceiling was covered with a carpet of black flies. And as you drove, their favorite thing, their favorite pastime, was to try to crawl up my nose. This is the kind of thing that God is sending to Pharaoh. Flies. But the promise is, no flies in Goshen. This is the first plague where God says, I will spare my people. Your people, Pharaoh, they will taste the flies. My people will be set apart. 
God keeps his promise. And then God clarifies what the lessons are. I will set redemption between my people and your people and that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the land. So God's in the midst of the land. What does this mean? Well, it means he's not an absentee landlord collecting rents and never doing maintenance. He's there. He lives with us. He sees where we live. He knows how we live. And the fulfillment of this, clearly, is in the coming of Christ. Where God is no longer with us, as He is omnipresent and everywhere, but He is with us as one of us. Not just to know where we live, but to come and live there with us. So that's what Exodus is thrusting towards, that God is in the midst of the land. The second half of the book is totally occupied with the building of a tent so that God can move into this tent and live with his people as they live in tents and as they travel around the desert and pitch their tents in various campsites, God's tent will come along and he will live with them in their camp. That's where Exodus is going. But already God says, I'm with you. I'm right in the middle of your land. Right, I'm right in the middle of your classroom. Right in the middle of your living room. Right in the middle of your office. Your patrol car. Whatever it is that you spend your days in. Wherever God has put you in your calling. He's there. He knows what it's like in there. He understands. And the message of Exodus is that he is coming to live there with you. But already Pharaoh gets to hear this. God will set apart the land of Goshen because, yes, he knows where the borders are. He understands where his people are and where the Egyptians are. This is not dumb luck, natural disasters, giant swarms of flies. No, this is supernatural disasters. The flies are a precision weapon that goes exactly where God wants them. Do you know God is present in your life? Do you think he sees what you're going through? That he knows about your neighborhood, your day, what's on your desk? He does. That's one lesson that the Israelites could learn as they went out and saw their neighbors covered in flies, right? spitting them out of their mouth, trying to blow them out of their nose. And the Israelites could say, I am fly free today. This is really nice. I never knew what a blessing it was to not be plagued with flies. But the other lesson is that God will make a difference, the New King James paraphrases, but literally, God says, I will set redemption between my people and your people. Notice, right, God has a people, Pharaoh has a people. God saves his people. God punishes Pharaoh's people. There's solidarity between the Egyptians and Pharaoh, just as there is between God and Israel. 
Israel is God's people. Egypt is Pharaoh's people. And of course, Pharaoh certainly agreed with that. That's how he saw things. He was God of Egypt. Yahweh is God of the Hebrews. Who's going to win? We know that the God of the Hebrews is going to win. God says, I will set redemption between my people and your people. What does that mean? Well, that the difference between Israel and Egypt is not that Israel is genetically superior, right? some kind of racial idea that would be totally foreign to the ancient Near East, just as it should be totally foreign to us. Geneticists agree that race doesn't exist, that human beings are human beings. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. No, it's not, that's not the difference. Nor is the difference one of family. These are Abraham's children. And Pharaoh, uh, the Egyptians are not Abraham's children. Right? One of, Pharaoh's, one of Abraham's children was half Egyptian anyway. Hagar was Egyptian. Ishmael was therefore half Egyptian. But the difference between Israel and Egypt is not one of race, not one of morals, not one of climate or location, not one of personal habits. Oh, the Egyptians are dirty and they get flies. The Hebrews are clean and they're free from flies. No, the Egyptians were very clean as well. The difference is that God redeemed one and not the other. God was pulling one out of slavery and not the other. As we'll see, the Egyptians did actually have the opportunity to join Israel and go out to freedom, and some of them did so. They didn't do a very good job, but they went along. But God did not come to Pharaoh and say, let your people go. Pharaoh, your tyranny in Egypt is over. We are setting up a constitutional republic here. Pharaoh would not have understood what that was. God didn't say, Pharaoh, let your people go. He said, let my people go. What's the difference between Israel and Egypt? The difference between Israel and Egypt is that God is rescuing Israel and not Egypt. Israel is saved. Egypt isn't saved. That's the only difference. And that's the difference between us and our non-believing friends and neighbors. It's not a racial difference, a socioeconomic difference, the difference between a good neighborhood and a bad neighborhood, a rich country and a poor country. That, that has nothing to do with it. The difference is that God saves his people and he doesn't save those who are not his people. We could say it this way, right? We're the ones on the deck of the rescue boat being dried out and fed hot soup. The others are still out in the water. Not rescued. What's the difference between us and them? Believers have been rescued, have been saved. The non-believers have not. God is teaching Pharaoh this difference. Pharaoh doesn't know any distinction within human beings except that between himself, a god, and 
slaves who work for him. God is saying, no, 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 Pharaoh. You're actually not a god. You're a human being. And you are a lost human being. There's redemption between my people and your people, and you're not redeemed. You're not rescued. You're not delivered. Now, it would insult Pharaoh to suggest to him that he needs salvation. He's a god. Nonetheless, Moses insists on it. Israel is redeemed. Pharaoh, you're not. So God sends the plague. The land is ruined by the swarms of flies. Egypt becomes totally unlivable, as you can well imagine. I think most of you in here, if we had come in and found the whole ceiling covered with flies, most of you would have said, let's not. Let's have church somewhere else. Let's do anything to not go into that room that's full of flies. Well, that's Egypt. Ruined, Pharaoh softens a little bit. Or at least pretends to soften. In fact, it's his idea this time. He called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. Once again, not serve your God, but sacrifice to your God with a condition, in the land. Now, how close to meeting God's demand is this exactly? God said, Let my people go out of the land that they may serve me. Pharaoh says, your people can stay in the land and they can worship, they can sacrifice. So we have one fraction of one demand being met. Rather like I mentioned before, our Muslim friends ask that you remove your shoes before you enter the mosque. If you were to go visit a mosque, remove a boot, just one of your boots, and then put a flip-flop on that foot, leave the boot on the other foot, and then enter the mosque. That would be the kind of negotiation that Pharaoh is entering here. I will meet one of your demands, but not really. And I certainly will not meet all of your demands. This is Pharaoh's idea of compromising with God. Is that a compromise? Is that the kind of thing that satisfies the Almighty? Right, thank God we would never do this. Oh God, you want me to give up that sin? Well, I will give up one insignificant portion of that sin. I don't give in to the sin of gluttony. Well, I won't eat any more donuts. I won't eat any less either. Oh, name your sin. So Moses says, no, we will sacrifice on God's terms. And he advances this story about the abomination of the Egyptians. We don't know what this is, whether he's saying, we will sacrifice something the Egyptians abominate. They won't let us do this abominable thing in their land. Or he might be saying, the thing we do at the worship of God is something the Egyptians hate. So... It's not clear whether he's saying that 
their worship is the abomination of the Egyptians, or that he is referring from the Hebrew perspective to something that the Hebrews consider abominable. But regardless, Pharaoh doesn't fight with him on that point. Pharaoh seems to agree, yeah, you better not sacrifice in the land. That wouldn't be a good idea. And then Moses comes back and says, this is what we'll do. We'll go in the wilderness. We'll sacrifice to the Lord on his terms. Not on your terms. God's terms. So Pharaoh then uh, tries to put a condition on again. I will let you go. Have you ever dealt with somebody like this who can't seem to get through his mind that he's not in charge of you? You say, here's what I'm going to do. And he says, oh yes, I'm happy to give you permission to do that. Didn't ask for your permission. You're not in charge here. Well, that's Pharaoh. Happy to rubber stamp some of Moses' ideas. So there he, does, there he goes in verse 28. I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God. Right? I'm in charge, Moses. I will say whether you can go or not. Only don't go very far away. Total posturing. Trying to save face and look good. Pharaoh knows that the situation is slipping out of his control and he just talks like it isn't. Moses calls him out on it, rebukes him, but first, Pharaoh cracks for a moment. Pray for me. His magicians weren't prayer warriors. We've already observed that. Somehow, Pharaoh understands that what he needs is in God's power. And so he asks for prayer. Again, do we ever do this? Pray for, or rather pray against a sin we have no intention of relinquishing? Or even ask for prayer to help stop this sin? But you don't want to give up. Oh, pray for me. I have such a terrible problem with gossip. Why, just last night I heard that... Then you pass on the story. So Moses rebukes Pharaoh. He knows how much one of Pharaoh's promises is worth. It's worth about as much as a cup of Nile water. I am going out. I will entreat the Lord. Don't deal deceitfully anymore. Pharaoh, please stop lying. You've lied to me enough times that I frankly don't believe you anymore. Nor do we believe him as we read the story. Pharaoh still thinks that he can lie to God. Again, do we ever think that? Oh, I can, I can get away with it this time. I'll tell God that this sin isn't really that bad. This one doesn't matter. I don't need to help my children right now. That's not my responsibility at the moment. I don't need to deal with this thought life. I don't need to fill in the blank. Right? Maybe we say God is all powerful. God can give me anything I need. Well, yeah, that's great. How often do you pray? Oh, never. And if you really believe God is all-powerful, wouldn't you pray and ask Him for what's within His power? 
So Moses prays, God answers him. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. Such an amazing statement. How God cares for his people. How God answers prayer. How God loves to answer prayer. That he let himself be bossed by Moses. That he did according to the word of Moses. Prayer means that the Almighty will listen to you and do what you tell him. Prayer means that the Almighty will listen to you and do what you tell him. That is an astonishing reality. And we would know it more if we prayed more. Now Pharaoh won't let the people go. Like all the plagues except the last, this one ends with that same notice. Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also. God has the power to send biting flies on you. So don't harden your heart. God sets redemption between his people and the world. So don't harden your heart. Tonight we need to learn the lessons that Pharaoh refused to learn. We need to learn to listen to God, not lie to God. To pray to God, rather than pretending we can get whatever we need without Him. To serve God, rather than demanding that the world, or some portion of the world, serve us. To listen to God, to pray to God, to serve God. That's what the Lord Jesus did. He listened to God. He prayed to God. He served God. That's what Pharaoh wouldn't do. When we've learned to do this, we'll have learned the lesson that the plague of flies teaches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. In our default programming, we are born thinking like Pharaoh. That we are divine royalty and that the rest of the world should be our slaves. Lord, forgive us. Change us. Help us to learn that you do set redemption between your people and the rest and that you are in the midst of every land. Don't let us harden our hearts Help us to soften our hearts, deal with our sin, submit to you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.